This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. Case van der Peel, thank you for joining me again in the trenches. Yeah, my, my pleasure, Germ. Are we in a propaganda war? Yes, but but then ever, ever since the, uh, the wars of the beginning of the 20th century, uh, all, all wars have... have mainly been struggles uh, to convince a population to accept that people will be dying for some cause um, and uh, for the west these causes have always been things that for the average person were very doubtful uh, as, as a cause to die for uh, so you had to uh, depict the opponent as, as the incarnation of evil. Uh, you had to suggest uh, situations of extreme danger uh, in, in which thinking itself had to be suspended and everybody had to be ready for sacrifice. And, uh, you know, you, you probably know the great stories about uh, William Randolph Hearst the guy who set up a newspaper in the uh, United States. I think that, that Orson Welles made his famous film uh, uh, Citizen Kane on the model of Hearst. And, and Hearst really, uh, as, as a newspaper man, almost engineered the, the, the war over Cuba. Um, uh, the war with Spain, it was, uh, that got uh, Cuba into the sphere of influence of the United States. And that was a, a propaganda war. And it's, it's interesting to see, especially now, that um, few societies have developed the capacity for complete propaganda as the United States have. You know, if you, if you read a book like, and, and that was after, that was what followed on, on Hearst. If you read a book like Walter Lippmann, 1925, Public Opinion, that's mm. the title of the book, uh, you see that he systematically develops the idea how to manipulate people into following any cause. And um, there was also the, the, the cousin of uh, Freud, you know, Edward Bernays, who was in the public relations uh, field, a pioneer of public relations. And, and the United States and the West generally have such a sophisticated understanding of how you manipulate uh, people uh, that all other societies, especially, well, today we are in, in a struggle with, uh, between the West and, and Russia, and uh, the, one of the first things that you observe is that um, Russia is helpless in terms of framing uh, its cause, you know. Um, what do you mean? To, well, Sorry, what do you, yeah, what do you mean? In, in, the West, in the West, we have the term narrative. And um, in 2014, yeah, I'm jumping from, from one thing to the next, but in 2014, when, 
when there was the that was the year of the coup d'etat in uh, Ukraine. Maybe we'll we have a chance to talk about that later. Mm. Mm. And Wesley Clark, um, the former NATO commander, a one-time presidential candidate. He, in 2014, was an advisor in the field of the new Ukrainian uh, people in power. Uh, because everybody was expecting that this would lead to a breakup of Ukraine, real fighting and so on and so forth. And Wesley Clark at that time said in an email to the current uh, NATO commander Breedlove, if Ukraine loses the narrative, uh, Russia will move aggressively forward. So he said there has to be a story in which everything falls in place. And Russia is accused of aggression, you know, the, the, the uprising of the, the people who wanted good relations with Russia in the East and in Crimea, etc., had to be framed as a Russian advance because he said literally, if Ukraine loses control of the narrative, Russia will advance. And that's when I first read that, I thought that's a strange way of looking at things because you and I, as, as well, maybe you're more sophisticated than I, military <laughs> man, but you, you would think that uh, a struggle anywhere is, first of all, decided by uh, the force of arms. No. But in reality, it is decided by the ability to create a frenzy of commitment on among large numbers of people and in that the west you might almost say has won every war so far and will continue winning them as long as the others are able to muster some comparable form of um ideological mobilization you know the, the west is so superior and has has developed these narratives to such a degree of sophistication that it's very difficult for societies which are not able to do that uh, to enter that part of the arena, however much firepower they may have. Just for clarity, when you say the West, what do you mean? Well, in, in, in my worldview, uh, the, the West was the moment when uh, the British Isles turned westward. So, when Britain conquered, when when England conquered uh, Scotland and Ireland and crossed the Atlantic and set up colonies in in North America, and and that created the Atlantic Basin in which capitalism came of age, and then later, of course, for the for the convicts, there was uh, Australia, uh, New Zealand. Uh, <laughs> And, and, and that the English-speaking core of the West uh, mm. is, is really... And, yeah, South Africa, too. Anchor point, yeah. And well, South Africa. South Africa, of course, was a crucial link uh, as, as late as 1900, which is why Britain fought this, for, for the time, very important war uh, with the Boers. So... You were you were jumping a little bit ahead um, of, yeah, yeah. Of, of of me. I just want to go back a few steps, just so that we can create a context here. Um, it's very easy to get caught up in the details, but would you yeah. mind just giving me an overview of how this Ukrainian Russian 
uh, relationship began? Well, we can go back very far. And uh, I, I can just say that what you always hear is that we're talking about uh, uh, broader people, you know, fraternal peoples mm. and so on. And of course, Kiev was the original center of, of uh, Christian Russian civilization and only later that moved to uh, the north. Mm. Um, but in the west of current Ukraine, there has always existed a, a sort of mini civilization which has struggled to survive amidst the rivalries between Russia on the one hand, uh, the um, the Asian hordes, so to speak, the, so the Tatars and, and all these people who were, uh, were coming in from, from Central Asia uh, along the steppe. And, and then you had uh, the Polish-Lithuanian Empire uh, also pressing on um, Ukraine, the original Ukraine, which was largely a, yeah, a very fertile agricultural area with its own dialect, language. And uh, a peculiarity of that area, of that area is also that in the, um, in the 9th to 12th centuries, uh, AD, um, the, the, the Tatar ruler of the area that is now Ukraine and southern Russia uh, decided that he wanted to move from uh, his own primitive religion to monotheism. And, and uh, he, he, he and his advisors looked around. Well, we're, we're pretty far back now, but it's, it's important to understand the complexity of that society. And he saw on the one hand <clears throat> a flourishing uh, Baghdad. That would mean that if he adopted uh, Muslim, the Muslim religion, he would be a subordinate of Baghdad. If on the, on the other hand, he adopted Christianity, he would be a subordinate of Byzantium. So he looked at the, the one other uh, religion, and that was uh, Judaism. And the, that explains why... Um, uh, rather than Jews in southern Russia and Ukraine being dispersed people who once lived in Palestine, that explains why there are so many Jews in southern Russia and Ukraine. And uh, so you have uh, the original Ukrainians resisting on the one hand Poles, and they have committed incredible massacres uh, of Poles, on the other hand, they have resisted uh, Russia, uh, and uh, furthermore, they have uh, been anti-Semites of, of a very, uh, well, of the first order. And in, um, in the course of their history, they actually never had a state of their own apart from that resistance in all these directions. So in, in a way, it's a hopeless cause that they're fighting. Yet they, they were the most important nationality, apart from the Poles and the Finns, who were, of course, uh, relinquished from their membership of the Russian Empire by the revolution. The Ukrainians remained within uh, revolutionary Russia after a short period in which they were a German dependency after the First World War and the Russian Revolution. But 
some of the most interesting writings of Lenin on national self-determination are about the Ukrainians. And that means that um, far, even far-sighted and, and yeah, uh, revolutionary visionaries realized that there would always be a problem of having Ukraine with this complex history inside a Russian dominated formation. And, yeah. and the advice was, let these Ukrainians go, let, the, let them form their own state and let the progressive forces then become dominant so that they want to return to this larger brotherhood of progressive formations and so on and so forth. Um, that, that is, that is uh, the, the broad, well, I would have failed my exam already now on many, on many points <laughs> if, if this was an exam, but this gives you a rough idea of of the issues that are at stake when we when we talk about the relationship between Ukraine and and Russia. In 1922, when uh, the Soviet Union was formed, uh, a large part of southern Russia was added to the original Ukraine, uh, roughly the river Dnieper, you know, the river, a very broad river on which Kiev is uh, located. It's sort and, of in the middle. Yeah, exactly. It cuts right uh, in the mm. middle of, of Ukraine and everything to the right of that was it's, it's Russian. only Russia. Mm. And um, that was 1922. And I, I once asked somebody who really knows things about this prehistory. And he said to me that probably the reason was that the Bolshevik in Bolsheviks in power were concerned about the role of the Cossacks and that they wanted to have a, a large area in which several nationalities were represented and the entire Cossack uh, population was was represented as well. But I, I can't judge that because I have no independent knowledge. And in 1954, Khrushchev, as they said, in a drunken mood, gave away uh, Crimea also to Soviet Ukraine. Uh, although Crimea was a favorite uh, destination for uh, Russians who were about to retire and wanted to enjoy the warm climate. It's a Riviera of, of, on the Black Sea. So it was mostly Russian? Uh, Crimea, oh yeah. Yeah, and, and, and a remnant, of course, of the Tatars, because Crimea was the last part of the Tatar Empire that once existed which was actually inhabited by Tatar in spite of the uh, forced um, uh, removal of the Tatars by Stalin. Because they, they, the, the communist leadership was very suspicious of uh, the Ukrainians all along. And there were, were always, well, for instance, one of the reasons why, why the Soviet leadership decided to intervene in um, Czechoslovakia in 1968, when there was a, you know, you know a, a modernization movement, very heterogeneous, was because the leader of uh, Ukraine, in the po who was represented, of course, in the Politburo in uh, Moscow, said, if we allow Czechoslovakia to go its own way, 
uh, Ukraine might also uh, want to do that, and we oh. can't. We, yeah, we can't run that risk. So one of the reasons why there was a narrow majority in the Politburo in Moscow to clamp down on the modernization policy in um, Czechoslovakia was again the the un potential unreliability of Ukraine, and of course the most dramatic form of that unreliability had been uh, the fact that in western Ukraine, so west of the, the river Dnieper, um, there were many people welcoming the Nazis when they invaded in June 1941. So, so I, I wasn't even chronological, but you probably see we, we have a, an area here which is charged with identity politics. It's completely different. Yeah, the two yeah and, the two uh, sides are very different. Yeah, yeah, and 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 the eastern what what uh, the people who are heroes for the western part are villains for the eastern part and vice versa. Like mm. for instance, the leadership in the Second World War of the Ukrainian um, West, who collaborated with uh, the Nazis and and committed, as I said, unspeakable crimes. Uh, against Jews, against Poles, uh, and against communist Russians. Uh, this was inside Ukraine? Yeah. So why is Crimea still so important? Well, it is like, a, you know, a solid um, aircraft carrier commanding the whole Black Sea. Uh, so... There's no way that uh, Sebastopol, which is, is the uh, location of, of the, the Black Sea Fleet of Russia, um, Sebastopol has, has a very heroic history of its own. You know, the Nazis, of course, wanted to conquer it. There was a fight, I forget uh, the length, I think almost a year, to get hold of Sebastopol had to do also with the birthday of Hitler, etc. They had their, the Germans had their best commander, Manstein, leading the attack. And even he didn't succeed in, in conquering it. Uh, uh, so, now, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Black Sea Fleet was still in Sebastopol. Of course, it was now part of Ukraine. So they concluded a uh, for several decades a, a lasting uh, agreement, uh, a lease, uh, in which, in exchange for cheap gas, um, Russia could use um, the uh, facilities of the, of the naval base of uh, Sebastopol. Uh, so, so then, and the Crimea is obviously still important, as we know, and we'll get to that in a moment, but also the east of, of Ukraine. They're both the Donbass. It, it, it means the basin of the river Don, and, and it's Luhansk and Donetsk. That's right, Luhansk. There we yeah. go. These, yeah. these are the provinces, but other areas like uh, uh, the province of uh, Kharkov uh, and, and uh, Odessa, for instance, on the mm. Black Sea coast, they are also... Uh, Russian dominated, so they have a long history of association with with uh, Russia. And don't forget that that the whole eastern, so the Russian part, 
was the um, center of the industrial industrialization drive in the 90, late 1920s and 1930s. So whereas Western Ukraine is, is primarily agricultural, although there are also important factories in Lviv or Lvov or Lemberg, as it was called when it was still Austrian, uh, the heavy industries are typical of the East. So you have Zaporozhye, Kharkov with its tank factories, etc. These, This is a mining area, steel factory area. Mm. Uh, of, of, that was extremely important in the Soviet era. So, so uh, Khrushchev, for instance, was, a, was a, an Ukrainian. He, he made his career in Ukraine. Uh, but but other later leaders also had association with with uh, Ukraine and many uh, people who made their career in the eastern part of Ukraine went on to become very important uh, people in the all Soviet leadership in in um, Moscow. So it, it's a it's a it's a crucial area for for. Yeah. Historical reasons, it's a problematic area. It has produced some of the key leadership of the entire Soviet Union. And in that respect, it resembles uh, what what many empires have had in the form of frontier area. So you had the Roman frontier area, you had the Chinese frontier area, and these frontiers mm -hmm. were always the place where people lived who understood life inside the empire and life outside the empire and yes. because they had that more that broader view they were often superior to the people who were completely at home in either one and, and right. that, i think that also ukraine actually means I, i'm not a linguist but uh, i've been told ukraine means borderland so it, it was the borderland at least in the east of the russian empire just as it was a borderland of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the West. Yes. There, another part of a prehistory comes into play, and that is that NATO, in, in, you know, in breach of all the assurances that were given in 1989, um, uh, NATO advanced until uh, inside uh, former Soviet Union with the Baltic uh, states, but also in 2008, in the, at the summit in Bucharest, Ukraine was Ukraine and Georgia were promised um, membership of uh, NATO. And the that was in 2008. And one year before that is 2007, Putin gave a speech at the annual security conference in Moscow, where he explained that Russia would no longer tolerate um, NATO advance into the former Soviet uh, territory for the simple reason that no state can accept that its security uh, would be jeopardized in that way. And uh, well, history has shown ever since. I mean, in 2008, France and Germany, even my own little uh, Holland, were still against that plan. So they vetoed it. Um, Germany and France vetoed the idea of allowing Georgia and uh, Ukraine to become NATO members. But in the period since, uh, it has become more and more clear that um, this NATO membership is no longer uh, illusory uh, in the longer run.
Uh, and there, the, the most important date is 2014. Uh, I already mentioned when, when talking about uh, Wesley Clark. In 2014, you had the demonstrations in Maidan, which were against the um, elected president, but also highly corrupt uh, oligarch in his own right then, by then, uh, Yanukovych. He uh, had been pressured to, to sign an association agreement with the European Union, but in the, at the last minute with, withdrew because the economic consequences of that would have been devastating for Ukraine, but also would have entirely cut off uh, it, Ukraine from Russia, which was at that time still its most important uh, trading partner, certainly in terms of quality goods and not just as a supplier of agricultural goods. Um, and the people who, who came to power and were brought to power in 2014 were Ukrainian nationalists. That means the people who, who embodied that history of anti-Polish, anti-Jewish, anti-Russian. Um, and uh, their uh, initial uh, measures against uh, Russian language, for instance, which is universal in, uh, in the whole of Ukraine as an intellectual language, as a language of internet, of TV, and so on, uh, set off um, uh, protest movements and, and separatist movements. Crimea had, uh, had been a problem for Ukraine ever since the Ukraine became an independent state from the start. Crimea was granted after long haggling uh, the status of a separate uh, republic. From 1991, Crimea didn't want to be part of Ukraine because it was inhabited uh, by actual Russians, not just by Ukrainians with a Russian background, but by actual Russians. They didn't want to be part, so they were granted the status of a republic within uh, Ukraine, special area, something like that. Uh, the annex uh, story is something else, and that is that in 2014, these people felt felt very much threatened by uh, the nationalist wave spreading from Kiev after the coup. Russia, of course, had its own interest in wanting to hold on to the uh, Sebastopol uh, area, and they didn't want to see uh, that turned into a NATO naval base. And these forces came together in a referendum in which the people decided, you know, you can uh, discuss uh, whether it was 90% or 95 or, but I can assure you that if you look at the composition who lived, who actually lived there, you will understand that these people wanted to be uh, part of Russia. And, and of course, uh, they were uh, welcomed for the simple reason that Russia also uh, would have annexed Crimea, even if it hadn't had these, uh, this referendum. And you had the uprising in the uh, most, uh, in the areas, in the two areas, Luhansk and Donetsk, which are most oriented uh, to Russia. And there was a massacre in Odessa, because in mm -hmm. Odessa too, there was a movement, but in, in early May 2014, that was brutally suppressed with the massacre among uh, demonstrators and, and so on. It's, and it's th that, was by, that was by the Ukrainian government? Well, not directly by the government, but it was organized by elements 
like uh, Parubi, the leader of the fascist uh, movement, right. uh, they they arranged to have football hooligans uh, begin a march, and it's it's a it's a very murky uh, situation. But anyway, uh, from 2014 to last February, you have seen a build up again of pressure, uh, and. In, in inside Ukraine to to join the West more emphatically. So NATO membership was raised again as an issue. EU membership was raised as an issue. And what is also important to realize is that the economic misery of the average person in Ukraine as a result of the stealing uh, of all the riches of the country by the oligarchs uh, was so extreme that people would have fallen, you might say, for any way out of that horrible situation. So, uh, yeah, curiously enough, <laughs> at some point of the, after the initial wave and the separations, uh, the separatisms, um, the most popular example of what, a, what could be a way out for Ukraine was, was Belarus, which, which in many respects is a sort of backwards nostalgia museum of, uh, of Soviet times. Uh, but for people in Ukraine, apparently that, that, that was a, well, an example that, that might be followed, but that highlights to what extent there was desperation in this country. People were extremely poor. Things were not working at all. Although I corresponded with somebody uh, who lived there, an Englishman. In, in, wait, in, Bel in Belarus? No, in uh, in Ukraine, and he had he had read my book, and and on one hand was very critical, but on the other hand also complimentary. And he told me that um, one of the attractions of living in Ukraine was that the state was so completely absent and uh, such a, a thieves' nest that as a citizen you hardly suffered from any problems coming from the state so there was no there were no lockdowns there were no masks in, in the, in the, that that's what he told me I, I wouldn't have been able to to make that up but he he told me that that is the situation so nothing is working here but that has its advantages you know it's a sort of anarchist liberal mm. anarcho-liberals paradise uh well I, I would immediately add there were also the ultranationalist and fascist groups who who are very um, high-handed. You know, they 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 attack uh, people. Uh, the last remaining Russian-speaking uh, broadcasts uh, broadcasters have been closed down. Uh, Medvedchuk, which was one of the leading uh, strata of uh, politicians. Uh, but pro-Russian uh, is in the dock now, as uh, he has been accused of treason and so on and so forth. So it's it's not so such a paradise. But anyway, that that all that was working and developing. <coughs> um, Zelensky, the the president, who who is uh, as you know a, a, a man with a theater background, which in itself is not a problem. I mean, <laughs> Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan. Yeah, he was also an actor. So what does that matter? Berlusconi of Italy was a was a, a crooner on on cruise ships. Uh, so 
and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And Arnold Schwarzenegger. He wasn't president, but he was he was the governor of California. <laughs> okay. Yeah, of course, Schwarzenegger. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> but anyway, the the uh, Zelensky was was a uh, had was was a, I wouldn't say stooge, but he was supported by Kolomoisky, and Kolomoisky mm. is is the worst. Uh, figure among the oligarchs on the western side because you also have oligarchs on the eastern side you know mm. Ahmetov, the the who has a tatar uh, background uh, but kolomoisky is is uh, in the west and um, he, he actually he has uh, three citizenships he's Cypri cypriot ukrainian and israeli because he is of jewish uh, extraction like like zelensky and Kolomoisky is the one who, who threatened uh, who, uh, threatened Putin to, to kill him and, and so on and so forth. Um, but uh, Zelensky was speaking about Ukraine uh, regaining uh, its nuclear capacity. And, and that set of alarm bells, of course, in, in uh, Moscow. Uh, because in 1994, Ukraine, which had inherited large part of the military capacity of the former Soviet Union, uh, gave up its nuclear arms under pressure from the United States, Britain, and Russia, who, in, uh, who together guaranteed uh, the integrity of Ukraine in exchange. So basically, they said, if you give up your uh, nuclear weapons, we will take care uh, that nothing happens to you as a uh, society. In a way, of course, the 2014 coup d'etat, which was really a coup d'etat, classical coup d'etat, on the backs of a popular movement, which was authentic and democratic, uh, the coup d'etat basically also uh, scuttled that to, uh, 1994 agreement, I would say. Yeah, and all these things came together and um, I, I, I would I would argue that first of all you 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 have to say not just as a ritual statement, but that every war is is deplorable and horrible. Well, you have a, a, a your your program is is dealing with that, so I don't have to tell you. But in this case too, we shouldn't think that it's a sort of sporting match in which uh, there are the goodies again the baddies once once the tanks starts to roll and planes start to fly um human misery uh, yeah. will be the the determining uh factor and also what is important here is that all wars have always been started with the promise that it would be a short and fairly clean campaign mm. and happening now in Ukraine is exactly the same. The Russians would come in uh, to eliminate uh, the Nazi element, which is very real and also has penetrated the upper echelons of uh, the Ukrainian uh, politics and army. Um, but it, of course, they became bogged down after some time. They began to lose, uh, well, to see casualties. Uh, to lose all kind of quality equipment that they thought was invulnerable. The West has been uh, pour, pumping in uh, weapons since 2015. The West, I was just reading it, has uh, armed 
the regime in Kiev uh, to the tune of 5.4 billion dollars. And we may assume that at least half of that has been embezzled by the oligarchs who have embezzled every, every cent that, that came in. But a lot, of course, has, has come in the form of hardware. Uh, and that's now being used and the, and the arms deliveries are continuing. Even Holland has just sent 200 Stinger missiles, which are missiles yeah. shoulder fire with which you can bring down a helicopter or a landing plane. It's not so high, but imagine if a Stinger from Holland would shoot down um, a Russian helicopter with 20 men or so on board. What, what, what situation will we find ourselves in? That's a very frightening situation. But as things stand now, Russia, of course, will always win between quotation marks. But it then uh, it, it will come at an enormous cost and they will be stuck with a, an area which, as before, uh, of which, as before, one half is vehemently anti-Russian. Plus the fact that Ukraine has now existed for th uh, 30 years as an independent state. So an entire generation has grown up, which is used to the idea that this particular land is theirs. And, and that explains, I think, the unexpected resistance to the Russian invasion. That you can't, you can't reduce it entirely to the Nazi fanatics sure. who, who are really fighting with swastikas and, and you know, the Azov battalion. The, the battalion that has been financed by Kolomoisky, this, this uh, oligarch in Dnipro 1 and 2, are they called? Um, but there's also an authentic unwillingness to pass under the influence of what for this new generation, and all the soldiers, of course, will be young men, um, what for them is, is their homeland, uh, especially well, so if they come from the West. Okay, so was this was this a strategic blunder by Putin, or was he lured into it by the well, West? Well, that, that's that's a, that's of course uh, an argument that you hear from many quarters that um, um, it was a provocation. Um, mm. I, I'm even even. Uh, willing to consider that after two years of COVID state of emergency, uh, which was clearly running out of steam, something else had to come up. And it might be that uh, forces in the West um, made a sort of calculated gamble uh, that it wouldn't be bad if the war that they saw coming anyway, because WikiLeaks you know, the Assange outfit many years ago already showed the documents in which the U.S. ambassadors in Moscow warned that Russia it would come to a, a hot war if Ukraine was pushed further on the road towards integration with the West. Mind you that in the same year that uh, at Bucharest, the United States made the offer to Ukraine and Georgia to become members of NATO. The, the imbecile who was then leading uh, Georgia, Saakashvili, 
uh, led his country into a war to try and recapture uh, another uh, separatist area in Georgia, in this case, uh, South Ossetia. And that, of course, he, his country is much smaller, his army is much smaller. So he, he was buggered to a much greater degree than Ukraine is now. Ukraine is larger than France. Georgia is a very small, mountainous country. So yeah, by pure chance, I, I, I was in, in April. I don't know whether it's worthwhile telling you, but in April, no, I, I was do, in, do. in Georgia in, for, for a conference organized by a Turkish university about NATO integration of Georgia. So that was one month before they uh, were invited in Bucharest, so March, March 2008. And it was organized by Turkish University and the, the foreign students at this university had, had, said, uh, had, had demanded that there would be at least one critic of NATO at that conference. Otherwise it would be too dull and would be a propaganda uh, event. And, and that, uh, that one critic was me. <laughs> but... But it was a very, because I had written a book on the Atlantic ruling class and so on. And, mm. But for me, it was an extremely instructive event because in, even in the plane on the way to Tbilisi, I was surrounded by Israeli soldiers in civilian clothes. And I, I recognized the Hebrew immediately. They were all you know, very rowdy and joking with each other and so on, pestering one of them, one of their own. And later, of course, I learned that uh, Israel had been uh, instrumental in uh, encouraging uh, Saakashvili to attack South Ossetia and uh, on, on a par with the United States. Uh, Cheney's, uh, Cheney was also uh, instrumental in, in encouraging Saakashvili. So he was beaten in a very uh, decisive way. The, 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 um minister of uh, of of war in ukraine who uh, had a double passport so he was kezarashvi uh, he was jewish and uh, i mean israeli and uh, georgian uh, all these people were were basically uh, yeah well they were defeated and the the reason why israel was involved had to do with the fact that there were bases in the south of georgia which israel wanted to use in case of a war with iran uh, and the Russian counterattack, which followed that that brazen adventure of Sakharvili, included the destruction of huge numbers of drones that were on these bases that Israel had envisaged to use in the war with uh, with Iran. But anyway, the, the important point is this: in 2007, Putin said, "We won't expect, we won't accept further pressure towards our borders by NATO." Uh, in breach of all the promises and agreements and so on. In 2008, there was a, a, a hot war between Russia and uh, Georgia, when Georgia tried to recapture a lost uh, province, of which they had three. There were three provinces that had broken away. And uh, what we're now seeing is the repeat performance of that same principle. So there are lost provinces. Uh, the state which feels amputated because it lost these provinces wants to recapture them by force is encouraged in that plan 
uh, by the West, so by the United mm. States, mainly by Britain and, and well, you, the EU plays the role it's always played since the death of Charles de Gaulle, which is the role of the headless vassals you know, who have no plan of their own. They, they're, right. just, uh, they're just sitting there and being economically active, but politically totally useless. Um, and but now we are playing for much higher stakes than in uh, at the time in uh, in the war with Georgia, because this is a real test of wills and test of strengths, and the and the West is is pumping arms, as I said, into Ukraine, and I think the the strategic goal there is to leave Ukraine as a ungovernable area riddled with uh, you, you know the measures they've taken uh, the ukrainian leadership and the people in power in kiev they have released prisoners from the prisons uh, and armed them with kalashnikovs imagine uh, before you land in a prison in that part of the world you really have to have done a few things to release those people give them heavy arms and say now you have to go and fight the russians is quite a step and it will not be easy to remedy that. On the other hand, they have asked for the formation of a, an international legion, sort of, um, in, into which uh, American and Canadian mercenaries and, and so on can also join. And so, sorry, and sorry, they, case. they no, have, sorry, have imported um, jihadists from Idlib province in um, Syria. So yeah, there are already pictures. So so there you see that this is a <laughs> this is not a consistent strategy, uh, because what what will they do with these jihadists if they don't leave again after whatever happens? So it, it so, sounds sorry, case. It sounds to yeah. me like what you what you're saying. Can I? I just want to make sure I'm following you. It sounds to me like what you're saying is that. <clears throat> The United States government and NATO uh, want to push Putin into a corner. Putin didn't really have too many options. So he was always going to respond the way he did. And Ukraine is sort of that Trojan horse. Yeah, that's right. But I know that probably you and I think on this uh, on identical lines but we shouldn't be talking about putin all the time as if he's in a position to entirely to decide these matters entirely on his own the sort the sort of leader that he is, is is what you call a bonapartist leader and then bonapartist always means the second bonaparte you know about whom uh karl marx wrote History repeats itself the first time as tragedy and the second time as farce. And uh, it's, the, <laughs> it's the farcical figure of, of the younger Napoleon who came to power in a, with a coup in 1852 in France and who became Emperor Napoleon III. Uh, who, and he was actually a, a, a nephew of uh, the, the first Napoleon, who was a Bonapartist leader in the sense that um, a figure like that rules on account of his ability to balance very different powerful forces inside his own country. And from the outside, it looks as if such a politician 
is an all-powerful dictator. But in fact, he's, he's just performing a balancing act. So Putin has to deal with the oligarchs who, who are plundering Russia just as much as the, uh, as the Ukrainian oligarchs are plundering their country, except that in Russia, the oligarchs have to take into account that there is a state, still a powerful state apparatus. He also has to take into account the army. He has to take into account the bureaucracy. The, of course, the, the modern modern population in the big cities, the somewhat more backward population in, this, in, the, in the countryside and so on and so forth. And all these forces balance each other. And as one little man in the, in the middle with his immediate advisors who are, who is, who are walking this tightrope, and, and so in that sense, when we say Putin wants this and Putin does that, of course, he takes the ultimate decisions with his inner circle. But um, I, I wouldn't rule out that, for instance, the military in, in the present situation have played an enormously important role because they okay. have seen that in Romania and in Poland, uh, installations so-called anti-missile installations have been installed by the Americans, which can also be equipped with attack missiles. Now, these, these attack missiles would reach Moscow uh, in a few minutes where they launched in a surprise attack. Now, that's not likely, but we all know the film um, Dr. Strangelove, in which it a is man... Is. Yeah, yes, it is. Yeah, exactly. In which a mad base commander, General Jack Ripper, uh, decides on his own to send his bombers in, uh, into the then Soviet Union. And, and there's a lot of um, radicalization going on in the American and British armed forces, uh, Protestant fundamentalists who think that you will be, that God will pick you up uh, amidst the exploding uh, nuclear devices and so on and so forth. And, and uh, a, a general Jack Ripper might just pop up here and there. So it's very important to see whether the political authorities remain in control of, of, of their uh, troops. On the other hand, of course, in Russia, there are also uh, military people who, who are upset about the imbalance and, and the humiliation. Putin, in, in many ways, is the representative of the, uh, of the security establishment. Uh, and they, they're on the, they feel that they're on the defensive and that they are being humiliated. And after the uh, war with uh, Georgia in 2008, in which the uh, many problems came to light, you know, the, the, the Russian army performed very badly. Of course, in the end, they crushed Georgia, if, if only by just sitting on it. But militarily speaking, they were very bad. So since then, all kinds of reforms have taken place. Russia has also, in response to the aggressive Western attitude, developed new types of nuclear weapons, like super gliders, which, which fly at enormous speed and can break through any missile defense, and so on and so forth. Neither you or I can be happy with, with that sort of arms race uh, developments because more things can go wrong as a, as a result if, if they fly. But, but it, it, is not, it is 
rational from a military viewpoint that the Russian military say we cannot accept uh, potential attack missiles on that uh, distance from our from the heart of our society. So, Case, I have to ask you, um, you said earlier that there, in a war there are no goodies and baddies, but I'm sorry, I, I can't... I can't stop myself but thinking that NATO really are the baddies. Yeah, yeah, but but here I have the same feeling. The reason I'm 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 stressing there are no goodies and baddies is because I don't want to allow myself to sympathize with a military machine uh, which is creating havoc in its own right. Even though morally speaking, they have the they occupy the high ground now. I mean, they, they have what they, what they do is not Who, literal sorry. self-defense. Who's, who's got the high uh, ground? The Russians. Uh, uh, Russia is is in a self-defense mode. Of course, somebody can object. Yeah, yeah. But it's, mm-hmm. if you ask, if you uh, attack a foreign country. Uh, in self-defense mode, it's no longer self-defense. But in this case, it's more complicated. It's not. It's not like the United States and Britain attacking Iraq out of self-defense yeah, because of the claim of Saddam Hussein having right. weapons of mass destruction. Uh, this is their neighbor. Uh, it's, a, it's a related people. It's a split society, and so on and so forth. And and they feel that. And and of course, they know much more about what's going on inside Ukraine than anyone outside of Russia for the simple reason that even if the CIA had 2,000 agents in Ukraine, they still wouldn't know what the Russians know because of language affinity, cultural affinity, long-standing links, and so on and so forth. So they they will have seen signals of things going bad, going definitely wrong, like when Zelensky says we, we, we want to get our own nuclear weapons again, they will know whether that is bluff or whether things are really going on that requires them to act. Um, so in that sense, I, I feel that uh, the Russians have the, have the better uh, moral yeah, position and, and are doing something which is legitimate in the light of uh, world history. It is a matter of world history because this event, as many people have observed already, uh, ends the era in which only the United States and its hangers-on have the initiative in world politics. Russia has now done something which shows that uh, nobody in Europe, and also if they are in the, remain in their right mind, nobody in the United States will even think of responding to with military means, because that would be the end of humanity. You know, because the, in a nuclear stalemate that we now have, the losing party will always, as a last resort, uh, use its its nuclear force. And, and of course, we, we can only hope that, that it won't come uh, so far and that the war ends uh, very quickly. Even then, the problems will only begin, uh, in my view. 
because what do you do if you have the eastern half of Ukraine, you have destroyed its army, but all these elements, radical elements, will only have become more radicalized uh, and so on. But that's a, that's a different story. So what is the exit strategy here? Well, I think the, the West has, has a, as I said already, the, the West has a purely uh, destructive strategy in, in that they want to repeat what they already did in Syria. And that is that you simply don't allow a central state to restore its authority over the entire territory. So uh, in Syria, you have uh, the Assad again in power or still in power in uh, Damascus, but Idlib in the northwest is basically under Turkish uh, control. The Americans control the, uh, the uh, oil fields and Israel since 1967 controls the Golan Heights and these days is even bombing uh, Damascus every other day. Uh, now, under such circumstances, no state can uh, ever recover. Mm. But that's not just a problem for Syria, it's also a problem for Iran and Russia, which support Assad. And you, you may recall that at many stages or at several stages in the Syria adventure, there were uh, people in Washington who said, what we must do is kill Russians in Syria, so that the pressure inside Russia on the leadership to stop this war, to get out, and so on. Now, such a strategy, in my view, is now also attempted in Ukraine, because Ukraine, uh, rump Ukraine, however you want to call it, will lose the war. Uh, Military, there's no chance that it, it can do anything else but cause damage to the Russian uh, invasion uh, force. But Russia is much stronger and it's better organized and, and so on. Uh, but what uh, the West can do is to raise the price for Russia of this victory. And that is pumping more weapons into uh, Ukraine, having these jihadists there, having the prisoners uh, at large also armed to the teeth and so on. So, so basically you're creating an enormous problem for Russia because they can't just turn around and walk away. This, if you have been talking about a broader fraternal people and so on, then, then of course you have to take the responsibility to restore uh, some workable uh, society. I have no idea. I, I follow every day, but we're now in what they call the fog of war. That means no party in that war will even tell you which cities they conquered for the simple re or, or villages or whatever, or strong points. For the simple reason that you're giving away potentially important information to the other side, so it's it's simply you can't see what's exactly going on, except that but, very slowly the Russians are strangling uh, the armed forces uh, of Ukraine. But what I mean, I asked you about the exit strategy. What do you think is the, the Russia's exit strategy here? I I, I really I, I can't make sense of that because it's an it's an act of desperation, you know. If if, if Putin, uh, you might, you know, if for rhetorical reasons, you might say, <clears throat> Putin, ever since he became president, has asked the West 
initially even proposing that Russia become member of NATO, he has been asking the West to take into account the interests of the security interests of Russia. That has become more, um, yeah, acrimonious uh, over the decades. But for 21 years, he has been saying we don't want further advance of NATO to our borders. <coughs> now that's that's just what's happening now. Why does the so, West? Uh, if you say what's the okay. exit strategy? There is no, I, I can't think of one. The, the mm. exit strategy is basically that he's now at war and countries like Poland are also in a very warlike mood, or at least the government, the, the people who are empowering in uh, Warsaw. Why, why does the West hate Russia so much? Well, because, you know, and this is, this is the same, <laughs> The same story that I also had in my book on uh, on the COVID uh, state of emergency. It's it's not easy to grasp to grasp and to to uh, understand, but we are living in the final crisis, and I'm not saying that is a matter of weeks or, but it can be a whole lifetime. But we're living through the final crisis of one particular uh, world order and the economic system that supported it. And that is, we are living through the end of capitalism, you know, the end of liberal capitalism as it originated in the Atlantic Basin, you know, in the interaction between uh, Britain and its uh, North American uh, colonies, uh, settlements. That system has risen to world dominance uh, in 1991. It, it defeated its last systemic uh, opponent. And from 1991 to the present day, in, in some respects till 2008, when the financial system collapsed, and since then we have only had repair operations and this and that. But the population is getting more and more restive. Uh, all, everywhere. I just saw images from Buenos Aires in, in Argentina where enormous uh, crowds were throwing stones and because the cost of living has become uh, insupportable for, for most people. Uh, in my view, the COVID operation was, was a response to that. They have, they have been thinking and planning for 10 years, you know, initially, of course, in a very disconnected and disjointed way and now they have played another card yeah when when i say they it suggests as if there's a central direction uh calling up uh, this or that office and saying now we go for this and now we go that's not how it works they're objective one one of the uh, just in the first month or so the COVID crisis we had a very strong opposition group and i i was in a in a panel discussion and at that point to my own surprise i said the what's what we now experiencing with the COVID crisis can easily turn into a war because at the time there were people who were saying this looks like a preparation for war you know uh, a curfew uh, you know, people are forbidden to uh, come out in the street, rationing, 
you you name it. All these things were present here and there in different to different degrees. And and now we we you know there's an objective dynamic at work. There you don't have to have central direction in this sense. So once you start employing uh, coercion as as a method of rule, before you know it's a spark will fly and you are turning that coercion into an external uh well in this case a, a war or at least you take steps that uh, provoke a war on the part of an of a, an opponent who already was thinking in that direction or at least preparing for the eventuality of of a war and it all goes back to the fact that from 2008 the system is in a in a, a state of perennial crisis why you said why do they hate uh, russia and china and you might add iran well because these are the areas which still have not fully succumbed to uh, western rule and and have not in the way that yeltsin was was uh, uh, he, he was the exponent of the pro-western forces these pro-Western mm. forces, by the way, are still very powerfully represented in in uh, Russia, except that in the current situation, of course, they will be lying low. Um, but uh, Putin is a hate figure. Uh, you know, there, there's no. It's not necessary for you or me to to uh, to discuss the, the man's character and so on and so forth. He's a hate figure for the simple reason that he symbolizes the unwillingness of mm. a large part of Russian society to submit to Western preferences and to Western global governance. And the reason for one is that they will feel the, the consequences of a system in, that is disintegrating. The capitalist system is disintegrating. The West, as, a, as the decisive military factor, is losing its, its clout. Um, and the empire yeah. the empire is falling yeah exactly and and um, yeah the other forces are not not very they're not much more attractive i mean uh, mm. you know, i i don't you and i don't want to live in china either russia is uh, a bit of a mid midway uh, situation anyway last night um as as I was in the middle of asking you a question, um, the power cut, and the question I was asking is, is, is Putin a globalist? And by extension, is he part of the new world order mindset? Well, one of the, you know, there's a whole crop of current leaders who have uh, passed through uh, the World Economic Forum's young global leaders um, lectures or training or whatever they had and uh, Klaus Schwab uh, the famous uh, German accent uh, toting head of the World Economic Forum he boasted at some point who who had been uh, his alumni and one of the people that he mentioned besides Trudeau and Macron was Putin but um, that is only a reminder of the fact that uh, uh, a ruler or somebody who represents, who heads the government, 
is an exponent of a particular society and that society is the real basis of his power not the courses that he took in uh, Geneva with the World Economic Forum and in that sense um, you can say two things that Putin initially was very much in favor of jo uh, Russia joining uh, the movement you know, Russia was a late arrival to to capitalism in in at initially at, at its most rapacious form, expropriating everything, extreme enrichment on the one hand, extreme impoverishment on the other, and so on. Um, but Putin uh, Putin's role was to end the the wild years of the Yeltsin era in which this all happened, and to to create a sort of normalized uh, capitalist society in Russia. And uh, he also, and that also entailed, uh, um, you know, uh, rapprochement with the West. And he even offered at some point, I may have mentioned that already, uh, mem Russian membership of NATO. Of course, that was also way, that was all waved away and he was ignored and, and so on. Um, after 2007, uh, when he uh, warned at the Munich at the annual Munich Security Conference, when he warned that uh, Russia would not tolerate uh, further advance of NATO uh, to the east, his love affair with the West clearly uh, was over, uh, because now he had uh, he had to represent the survival values of Russia. Russia as a as a which has been a victim several times of aggressors coming from Western Europe. Um, and the West at large, and and um, so we are back in the old situation. Russia has been forced to um, arm itself, to rearm with modern uh, nuclear weapons, unfortunately, and it has now struck back against uh, what seemed like plans to take uh, by Ukraine to take possession again of the Donbass uh, republics and probably even of uh, Crimea and um, that doesn't mean at the same time because I have to stick to your question which was um, is he a globalist yes he is he's he still thinks that um, at least that's how I reconstruct it he still thinks that capitalists are superior to a planning bureaucracy in that, for instance, um, uh, the building the bridge from uh, the main uh, Russian mainland to uh, Crimea was done by one of his um, oligarch friends, and it was built to top standards, uh, and so on and so forth. I, I would personally disagree that that you need an oligarch to build a bridge, but that's that's a different story. Mm. He somehow has had to accept, and again, I, I regret having to talk about he all the time as if there's one man who, you know, even Xi Jinping, who had himself appointed in China as a life, as a president for life, is not all powerful. You know, every, every ruler is faced with the ruling stratum and a whole ruling class in which are all kind of forces that have to be, that will not take no for an answer. And it's the same in in uh, Russia. But uh, the situation that prevails in Russia is that there's a capitalist class 
uh, of extremely rich oligarchs. Of course, below that you have a layer of, of technical and financial and, and political specialists who um, work for them. And then you have the rest of society. And inherent in that situation is that uh, there a conflict and a class struggle will be operational in these relations. You know, the, the, the people mm. will not endlessly uh, tolerate that uh, a rich uh, class of yard owners who are sailing the world's oceans at their expense, because basically there's only one source of their wealth, and that is what's in what, the Soviet, all the riches of the Soviet Union have been divided among these uh, oligarchs and, and the, the riches of the country are currently still being sold by, the, by uh, these rich people. That is not something that can endlessly go on unless you allow your population at large to really profit from, you know, in a sort of uh, social imperialist sense, you allow your uh, people to profit from uh, the benefits that as a world power you have in operating the world, in playing on the world market and so on. Uh, so in that sense, uh, the, the days of the current system are numbered also because uh, the ruling class in Russia is divided. You have an Atlantic fraction controlling, for instance, the central bank. You have these oligarchs, several of whom are integrated with the ruling class of the West, for instance, Hermann Greff, the, the boss of Sberbank, the largest bank of Russia, if I'm not mistaken, uh, he is a member of the Trilateral Commission. And these are the Trilateral Commission, like Bilderberg, these are bodies in which uh, behind closed doors there's all kind of conversation, how should we move ahead, what are the main challenges ahead, where the global ruling class or the transnational ruling class tries to achieve some, some measure of consensus and where, where they discuss with politicians and with other people who work for them uh, the way forward. That whole system is bound to run aground because the, 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 the engine of the capitalist system is no longer, it's sputtering, you know, it's, it's no longer uh, running smoothly. And now with uh, rise, fast rising prices for and shortages of food of fuel these are these are essential goods for the world population and we have uh, seven and a half billion people now uh, going forward to eight that will lead to tremendous unrest uh, because yeah the weakest countries like your own continent but then of course not south africa but uh, black africa north of it uh, will will suffer. The Middle East will suffer. Uh, the population, of course, not not the shikes. Mm. Uh, and all that looks looks uh, very grim. And and one one of the things that we have to realize with uh, the outbreak of a full scale war in Ukraine. Of course, there was a war already for many years uh, in which the separatist uh, provinces and what remained of them was being shelled by uh, the forces of Ukraine, encouraged by NATO and the United States. And, and that already cost something like 14,000 people dead, also women and children, etc. What's happening now to Ukraine is, is still, you know, incomparably uh, less. 
Although, again, you, you, every other sentence we should say that we deplore what's happening there. No, no one likes war, and it's always the, 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 the weakest people who suffer most. Uh, and usually they have had no role in... in uh, there was no war fever in Ukraine, just as there was no war fever in Russia, except here and there in the media. Uh, same for Ukraine. Uh, so most of the most of the two peoples have simply been taken hostage by the forces that were looking for a, a violent solution, uh, and that solution is still in in full swing. Everybody hopes that it will soon be uh, soon end in in some form of uh, agreement. The the issue of the agreement is completely clear recognition that uh, Ukraine will not be a NATO member, recognition of the separation of the Donbas provinces, uh, maybe more, and recognition of Russia's sovereignty over uh, Crimea. I mean, that's, that's the peace plan. So you and I can work it out in five minutes. Uh, and so can the leaders of uh, Russia and, and uh, Ukraine, except that behind the leaders of Ukraine, so behind Zelensky and his government, is the West. And the West wants to uh, this war to serve as a as a means to bleed Russia to to make to make it weaker to to undermine its existence as a as an entity that can resist uh, Western influence. Uh, what would happen if if Ukraine joined NATO? Well, then the war that's already going on now will remain a war, and and it will it will rapidly spread. Uh, I don't know whether we already discussed the the issue of uh, Poland volunteering to send its old MiG twenty nine. Well, they're not that old, but the, the it's uh, MiG twenty nine jet fighter fleet. Um, to Ukraine, uh, and that they propose to do that via Rammstein Air Base in Germany, which is the headquarters of the US and NATO Air Force in, in Europe. Sure. Um, now, Russia has said that whoever delivers planes to um, Ukraine will be in direct conflict with, uh, with uh, Russia. And uh, yeah, if I mean, if if Poland would send these jets to an airfield in Ukraine, the Russians would bomb that airfield along with the planes. Mm. But but the perverse. Uh, so so the question arises: Will they also bomb Rammstein air airbase in Germany if if that happens? Now, of course, that's practically inconceivable. Yeah. But it, it gives you a sense that, that the opportunities for, for escalation are there. Now, the United States, and, and, and there I'm speaking of the State Department, so not, not a defense establishment, not the Pentagon, but the, the State Department has said that if Poland gives its jet fighters to, uh, to Ukraine, it, the, they will be replaced by F-16 uh, U.S. jet fighters, and and no sooner had they said that, or a whole line of East European countries, which have fleets of older Soviet uh, jet fighters, have also volunteered. Uh, not oh, so much right. because they want to 
help Ukraine or, or whatever, but because they want to get these new jets for free. And that's, that's, uh. these are <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. These, these are orders of uh, transactions of, of, let's say, half a billion US dollars. So oh, these governments say, wow. Uh, we also like we like so but that way the arrangement will come to naught because the Pentagon has already said that's very risky and we we don't have so many posts on our in our budget to finance this sort of uh, delivery. Do do the U.S. government and NATO want Putin removed? And in fact, do they want Russia subdued? Oh yes, 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 and that that dates from. Uh, uh, there, there are many reports um, uh, of the Rand Corporation, for instance, you know, the California think tank originally um, set up by the air, by the aerospace industry in the U.S. after mm. the Second World War. But also in the book by, by um, Zbigniew Brzezinski in 1997, the Grand Chessboard, mm. in which he, uh, he outlines that Russia should be Russia proper after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, Russia proper should be div divided into three states, European Russia, a, a mid-Siberian and an Eastern, Far Eastern state. And, and they are well aware of that. And in several of these reports, I, I quoted them in a, in a chapter in, uh, uh, I, I, I edited a volume which was called um, uh, last year, which was called uh, the militarization of the European Union. And I had a few chapters in that myself. And one of the chapters is uh, about uh, the who who will protect the Baltic energy highway. Uh, that's very topical uh, because one of the victims of, of the whole uh, tension now is the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. So we will be uh, short of gas very soon now. But um, uh, in that uh, chapter, I also quote several instances of uh, U.S. reports of the Rand Corporation and others in which um, oh, is openly debated how the figure of Putin can be removed because they think that this one man uh, embodies the resistance of Russia to subordination to the West. Of course, that's not the case. If Putin drops out, another person will uh, come in who will be an exponent of the same set of social forces that uh, produced Putin. Personally, I would say that I'd rather settle for Putin for the simple reason that, in my view, he's the only um, leader in maybe in the world even although Imran Khan of Pakistan in my view is also a very serious uh, statesman but Putin is is one of a rare class of true statesmen who understands the realities of power who has the wisdom to to uh, you know to uh, yeah to settle very volatile situations in in a bit in the way I, not so long ago, I read a book about a very, very uh, thick volume on Bismarck, you know, the late 19th century Iron Chancellor of Germany. And yeah, there are you've many. Yeah, you've made the comparison before. I'd like to hear. Okay, did I? Did I? Okay, then I don't have to repeat it. Here. No, 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 no. You made it on another interview. I'd like, I'd like for oh, you to okay. repeat. Okay. Well, well, Bismarck. <laughs> 
in that book on Bismarck, uh, you, you read that not only was he uh, somebody who, who uh, had a clear sense of where the long-term interests of Germany were, uh, he was also uh, a, a state builder in the sense that he expanded the realm of Prussia proper to an integrated Germany. He, he had, a, he had a, a predilection that this could best be done from above rather than through democratic mobilization. And the inevitable consequence of that was that the, the, the military, military solutions played a large role. And on the side, he arranged for his own pension through the Bleichröder Investment Bank, who took care of his personal finances, because, of course, he had no time for that sort of trifle. And, and of course, with, with this apology that, of course, uh, there's no similarity, literal similarity between two men in such different circumstances. But uh, I think it, it's a real, it, it's a nice template to begin reconstructing the, the motives and opportunities and, and habits of a, of a man like uh, Putin. But the basic thing is that this is if, if you have ever seen anything of the interviews that Oliver Stone made with Putin, and part of which is also included in his uh, excellent documentary, Ukraine on Fire, mm. very topical these days. So it has been, been removed from YouTube from the YouTube. other day. Yeah, it's been censored. Yeah. Uh, so, but you have to watch it because uh, if there's anything that gives you the f uh, a bird's eye view of, what's, uh, of the background of what's happening now, it's that documentary. But in this film, you see, you hear a realist speaking, somebody who has no illusions about the world, who, who, and who at the same time argues, not in ideological terms, but in terms of clear-headed thinking. Uh, and, and I find that reassuring, because whom do we have in the United States now? We have a, a president who, unfortunately for him, and you know, it's a human tragedy, of course, but he's losing sense, the sense of, of what was going on in the world. He even warned against, uh, he said that the, the next danger was uh, Putin invading Russia. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course, we can laugh about it, but that happens to some old people if you, if you drink too much. <laughs> and and I want to do other things uh, wrong. No, no, but I mean, that, that's, that's the main opponent. Uh, so that's a, again a reminder that uh, a leader at the top is usually only a mascot yeah. uh, of, of a whole set of interests. And it's also in, in the US, it's reassuring that the Pentagon and the State Department don't see eye to eye to each other. Mm -hmm. They are really on different, on different wavelengths. And ultimately, it's the same with Putin, as I said now several times, but I like the idea of a leader who thinks for himself, just yeah. as John F. Kennedy was in the 1960s, um, or Roosevelt in, in World War II. The, these were leaders who, of course, represented whole blocks of interest that they all had to satisfy one way or another, and yet were able to synthesize this into a powerful position that, that led somewhere. And, and in that sense, yeah, we, bet, we better keep Putin 
for a while and uh, I, I understand he has arranged to remain president until 2036 so when you when you are old already and I'll be gone he's still around <laughs> how important is BRICS well there are several interesting I mean uh, the, the you know that the, the label BRICS so Brazil Russia India China South Africa joined later um, was invented by uh, a Goldman Sachs uh, investment banker simply to indicate uh, here you have uh, five initially four large economies in which, who have all switched to capitalism who have tremendous growth potential so why don't you put your money there um, on the other hand uh, the BRICS countries themselves objectively coalesced into a sort of co loose coalition you know you also have the Shanghai cooperation organization and um, uh, uh, you have the Eurasian Union so and, and you have the south you have a South Asian uh, block as well uh, but the BRICS very very slowly coalesced uh, when they uh, began to realize that uh, investment finance so you know that you invest in in, in new harbors in in power uh, generation and the, the very expensive uh, structures that you need to to uh, accelerate uh, industrialization and economic development processes that these could not be financed through volatile speculative money flows of the type that were dominant in the West so there was a different they needed a different form of financing and uh, at after 2008 that requirement became uh, acute and it's it's very interesting to see that in 2014 when the coup happened in uh, in Kiev and when later in the year um, MH17 uh, uh, was brought down over eastern Ukraine uh, there was a conference in uh, uh, Fortaleza in uh, Brazil in which the leaders of the BRICS decided to accelerate uh, the process of establishing an alternative to the World Bank and uh, IMF uh, combination and that was the so-called new development bank and um, uh, that was a very memorable uh, occasion in Fortaleza because at the same time the final round of the, 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 the um, World Football Championship was going on and Germany of course is always uh, in the last uh, round and Chancellor Merkel was also in uh, Brazil to watch the foot to support the national team of Germany uh, there's a famous photo in which you see Putin sitting next to um, Merkel with the interpreter in between although they can they both speak uh, their respective languages and uh, there apparently Merkel and uh, Putin agreed to bring the Ukraine conflict to a conclusion uh, by sure. um, uh, a gas rebate for uh, Ukraine uh, um, a collective reconstruction program for the for that country in exchange for a recognition 
which is again on the table today, of Russian sovereignty over Crimea and the eastern provinces. That, that was on the table there. Putin then flew back to uh, Europe. I, I won't bother you with all the details, but he flew back uh, to Europe. And as he was flying back, MH17 was shot out of the sky. We still know, don't know by whom, although you can have suspicion, because the United States had instituted uh, economic sanctions against Russia over the, separa uh, over the uh, incorporation of uh, Crimea. But Europe didn't want to go along with that uh, after MH17 had been shot down, uh, the EU followed. It's a, it's a bit like now, you know, Germany wants, uh, or German industry wants uh, Nord Stream 2, the pipeline, second pipeline uh, through the Baltic Sea. Uh, several countries of the EU indicated that they would in no uh, uh, that they would not join uh, a military confrontation with Russia now that Russia has invaded uh, Ukraine everybody is in line so Nord Stream 2 is not it's well you can't cancel it because it's already lying on the Baltic seabed but it has not it, it's not being uh, used and all the countries that indicated they would not join a military of, uh, stand against uh, Russia have fallen silent. And in that respect, uh, the current situation resembles in many ways uh, what happened in... Um, I'll just get some electricity here. Uh, resembles what happened in 2014. But you said about the BRICS. The BRICS were... The BRICS were uh, becoming less important after that critical moment of 2014, especially because India and uh, China were at loggerheads. There were all kinds of tension. But even more interestingly, these days, negotiations have been taken up between China and India to settle outstanding uh, issues between them. China is clearly siding with Russia now because they know that they will be next uh, in, a, in a Western military confrontation policy. So although the word BRICS is not heard much these days, uh, the Chinese project of, a, of a train lines and, and, and shipping routes to, uh, to the extrem Western extremities of the Eurasian uh, landmass are in full swing, but they are not a BRICS project. They are a project of China on its own uh, yeah. with with the former Soviet republics, with Russia, etc. But um, objectively, you might say that the BRICS combination is, is again uh, becoming a factor because ultimately the sort of capitalism that they represent is a capitalism uh, aimed at long-term growth prospects with a strong industrial real economy component, whereas in the, the West has fallen victim entirely to the speculators. Where South mm -hmm. Africa is, you are probably in a better position to tell me than I would try to explain because I don't know. Of course, South Africa has a much smaller economy than the other four. What do you see happening 
um, with all these sanctions? Well, there, there are many people who have made a comparison with Japan. You know, Japan never, although the militarists were in power there in, in the late 1930s, and they had all already occupied uh, Manchuria in, in the, the north, north of China. Uh, but Japan never wanted to uh, start a war against the United States. They did that only because they were strangled by uh, economic sanctions. Uh, they, they had no oil if, if they would remain uh, uh, short of war. And that's why they attacked. Although famously the uh, admiral who was leading their navy told the ruling group, I can uh, produce, I can bring you, I can give you uh, a number of military victories, but in the end we will lose. That's what he said sure. uh, at the outbreak of hostilities. And the reason was, was simple. Japan has fewer people than the United States and the re colonial powers than Britain and the Netherlands mm. than still in the areas that they want to, wanted to conquer. And people compare that. So they say Russia will become more dangerous because if it's really strangled the way it's being done now, etc., etc. But that if you look at the world map, which countries have actually joined these sanctions? You see, it's only North America and, and Europe. South America is not joining. Africa is not joining. Turkey, NATO member, is not joining. Uh, and the rest of Asia is not even considering uh, whether this is something for them. So that means that although there will be some unpleasant consequences for Russia in the shorter run, they have a whole world of, of potential uh, economic partners, plus the fact that sanctions always are a two-edged sword, that uh, if you are withheld certain substances or, or services that you used to get from abroad, you're forced to organize them yourself. I mean, I know yeah. that South Africa, for instance, profited net, uh, you know, in, in net terms from uh, the sanctions against the apartheid regime by building very strong, uh, large companies, yeah. uh, state companies, later, I guess, privatized. And it, it, uh, the same has happened in, has happened in, uh, in uh, Russia, that, well, which has been for decades now under sanctions. And these sanctions have helped to produce, uh, to make uh, Russia again uh, uh, pay a lot of attention to its agriculture. Uh, it's now one of the main suppliers of uh, wheat in the world and even of corn. And that... Uh, the reason why, um, well, there, there are real problems. I, I personally know a, a good friend who, who had a business supplying Russia with uh, an additive uh, used for for um, for calves, you know, for for uh, cattle. Uh, his bank has been uh, hit by the SWIFT sanctions, so he can't he can't pay and he can't be paid. And now his his company has bank is bankrupt. Sure. Uh, so in that sense, uh, there's a lot of fallout. But mm. as a whole, on the you know the overall result for Russia 
uh, will be that they will have to find replacements even for the for the like swift for the payment system so they will have already a payment system with china in which yeah. the balances are settled in their own currencies and so on and so forth so, so it, capitalism this... will die sooner than russia will uh, collapse as a result of uh, sanctions so are you saying then that the one of the counter um, effects could be very harmful to the West in terms of oh, the dollar, yeah. for example. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is why, uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's one thing. Uh, so the dollar, which of course has been overvalued for, well, maybe the entire post-war uh, period, <laughs> but then initially it, it, the United States still had to offer so much to the rest of the world in terms of yeah. social models, um, you know, functioning economy, an economy in overdrive, really. Uh, but all that has stalled and then began to decline after the 1970s. And yeah, what the United States has today is, a, is an overblown uh, military machine. The moment uh, raw materials and all kinds of commodities are no longer uh, settled in US dollars, uh, countries' reserves are no longer uh, in the form of US dollars. Uh, the U.S. dollars will dollar will collapse to something like thirty percent of its current uh, value. Now, of course, it's an enormous economy on its own. So, with with trade partners to the north and south, uh, so it's all not so not so simple. Also, I'm not I'm not really qualified to make that sort of uh, prediction. But what we are. Um, what Brzezinski, whom I just quoted in uh, from his book uh, *The Grand Chessboard*, he also his last book was called *Strategic Vision* or something, and because he died a few years ago. And in that book, he said that if the United States loses its position as the leader of the West, so you know the Pax Americana, the peace imposed by the United States on the rest of the world, will end. We shouldn't expect a Pax Sinica, a, a Pax, a, a peace imposed by China on the rest of the world. He said in that book, if the United States fails to resume its leadership role, we will enter a period, a long period of chaos. And uh, I'm afraid uh, that that is what we are entering now. So, so is that uh, the term? When is that the term? Multipolar. Yeah, 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 but but uh, multipolar has has a sort of uh, reassuring ring about it because uh, <laughs> yeah, because it means that there are several organized uh, entities which recognize the presence of each other and more or less allow it uh, allow them to to behave as sovereign entities. But that's quite interesting because uh, Klaus Schwab and and the World Economic Forum have openly stated on their website that by 2030, the United States will no longer be a global power. Yeah, because they expect that then the entire world will have adjusted to uh, a unipolar uh, capitalist world in which uh, digital, uh, you know, the, the digital means uh, an entirely private uh, economy, uh, you know, uh, a monthly allowance for everyone who's who's useless uh, but surviving uh, will have be put in place, uh, and there's no need for a, for a world power because there are no 
no rivals anymore, no, no challengers, no contender states unwilling to submit to what is now still the West. So in that sense, he's, he's right, except that his perspective will never come about because the difference that I just mentioned between a speculative, entirely individualized economy mm -hmm. in which everyone is on, a, on their own versus a, a more organized, truly, true, also oligarchic, but still investment-oriented uh, capitalism. These are structural changes that you don't change from a, a structural givens that you don't change from one day to the next. Mm. And the population all around the world is getting restive, has been getting restive, especially after 2008, when, when people for the first time experienced that there was no food in the shops. I mentioned that maybe in our last conversation, you know, about mm. food riots here and there. After that, all records in the world have been broken in terms of strikes, anti-government protests, and so on and so forth. I, I think in our conversation yesterday, I already mentioned pictures that I saw from Buenos Aires. Yeah, I remember now. Um, and, and that will become more frequent. And people, people will resist all attempts to uh, towards transhumanism you know to to turn people into to turn to turn living humans into appendices of their uh, mobile phone that's something that's not going to succeed it's did you ever think that you would even be saying that it's it's such a crazy idea but we actually yeah. talking about it it's so strange yeah 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 I've even been invited here in, in Holland to by by a student organization to come and speak about it. So I I have to get deeper into it. But but on the other hand, uh, I'm not sure whether I mentioned that. But uh, you know James Lovelock, the famous inventor who wrote this book at the age of hundred, uh, you know the mm. Nova scene, the, the era of new. Basically, he also speaks about. Uh, humanity uh, associating itself in a very profound sense with uh, artificial intelligence in such a way that we will be able to in to to colonize outer space and turn uh, the entire universe into a thinking entity although we on earth sure. will still be the the at the heart of of the thinking process but artificial intelligence will allow us to to govern the planets and far away uh, uh, Milky Ways and so on, uh, galaxies. Um, these are these are fantasies, and I'm not against that sort of fantasy. Uh, the only thing that we absolutely have to be sure of is that what is human, what makes us human, are you know the 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 use of our intuitive intelligence and creativity remains in charge. Apart from that, if, if you have safeguarded that, there's nothing against the maximum use of artificial intelligence. I mean, if I look at my own work, work in all modesty, things that would have taken me years in the library, uh, in library <laughs> work and archives and so on, now you do in two afternoons in mm -hmm. terms of gathering uh, up-to-date material. That's why... 
uh, censorship is so self-defeating because they uh, the media censorship now and the internet censorship actually cuts down uh, one of the great achievements that that uh, we have okay i asked you this in uh the last conversation that we had a few weeks ago and i'm going to ask it to you again case van der pale in front of you there is a crystal ball what do you see well now we see the fog of war so every day i'm looking for the latest on where what's what's happening on in the in the battlefield and it, there's mist because in in an ongoing war there's no concrete information except fake victories and etc propaganda um, oh yes uh yeah otherwise i i find it a difficult question because i often rely on i only rely on what i absolutely am certain of at least at the moment that i think i am and uh, to speculate on what is coming i'm 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 not so sure uh, I'm, I'm for instance i hope that there will be a revival of uh, the interest in world affairs and the future of the planet and so on on the part of the young not necessarily that they represent something very special except for being young but normally we we, we used to associate um uh, fighting spirit uh, you know fighting for a better future with the student age group young workers young people in universities and schools and so on and uh, that has been a bit absent uh, in the COVID crisis where the, the uh, younger generation seemed especially intimidated and even was made to feel guilty about you know infecting the older the weaklings uh, like myself who are languishing in their old people's homes etc so the young were were really played on they were really put under pressure mm -hmm. you're you're killing your grandmother and that has had a lasting effect uh, in in absolutely hor horrifying ways but at the moment i'm seeing a resurgence in here in holland we have three organizations now to um, represent, uh, well, to to re restore some sort of hope for for the young uh, generation, and uh, well, I also expect that that will uh, gain strength. But yeah, the problem is that what is rotten about capitalism has now been eating into education and news provision and so on to such an extent that you almost have to be a genius as a young person to begin to reconstruct what's really going on in the world and to find meaningful terms of coming uh, to grips with it and mm. so well maybe that's a separate uh, topic you know what wh where and what went wrong with the development of uh scholarship of social science but but by social science i don't mean some sort of exotic insights into society but the general sense of society about itself uh, that is something which is getting lost now in the particular forms of contemporary academia and media um, Case van der Peil, 
It is always a pleasure chatting to you. Um, God bless you. Thank you so much for joining me in the trenches. Well, thank you so much, uh, Germ, for having me. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.